guys are like trying to herd cats. I swear. I was I was a little surprised that that Bill sent his message on the other uh, feed uh, with Teresa involved, which is the source of my let's get the prettier Pescarella on. <laughs> I think if she's getting the messages anyway, I might as well butter her up a little. I don't think I saw that one. <clears throat> Dave saw it. I did. In fact, he was apparently quite hurt by the thought that he wasn't the prettiest Pescarella. Have you seen yourself? Holy shit, dude. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> This isn't a beauty. Mirror, do you, is there a mirror in that house? <laughs> they, we're on ra- we're on radio, so we don't have to worry. Exactly. That's why we're on radio. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Stop it! Genesis. Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody. Right, which, uh... Welcome to the Scott is going to interfere with my opening back to the bins episode. <laughs> you give me no warning, no warning whatsoever. <clears throat> Yeah, the, the, when when you said let's get jumping to this, that wasn't warning. I guess <laughs> we need an official let's countdown. Try it again. One hundred ninety-nine, <laughs> ninety-eight. Um, which which brings to mind what the, the the story I like to tell, which I call Paul's colonoscopy adventure. <laughs> uh, oh shit! Not that again. <laughs> it's it's. Luckily, it's not graphic to speak of, but when you know they, when when they give you the anesthesia, and then they tell you count back from a hundred, you know, and, and then eventually you you pass out. So in my mind, I was saying, okay, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna force myself to stay awake. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get down to zero and f them, one hundred ninety nine. <laughs> oh shit, they're done already. <laughs> <laughs> you just want them to it's give like, you more drugs. I couldn't stay up for like five seconds. <laughs> I convinced myself I was staying up. You know, I was not going to sleep no matter what, and I fell asleep in like three seconds. <laughs> anyway, hello everybody, and welcome to I'm Bull Spitaro, and over there on the other side of the green are David Pascarella and Scott Gardner. What's happening, boys? Hello. That much. Yeah, how's it going? <laughs> it's it's almost like people listening say, "There's nobody in the room." He's making this shit up. <laughs> so interestingly, I'm gonna I'm gonna th- jump right into things here a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you saw, I posted on the Back to the Bins page my uh, my self slabbed collection now. 
but I also there, there are Facebook groups for uh, Hulk 181 and Spider-Man 129. So I posted those two individual issues on those pages, along with a comment saying, although I'm not a big fan of CGC, I do like the fact that I can have these books slammed and protected. Well, it started a shitstorm on the Hulk 181 <laughs> page. People, you know, defending CGC, people blasting CGC, and me just kind of like watching it all happen. The uh, <laughs> months <of> popcorn. <laughs> and that's how the Civil War started on the comics page. <laughs> the, the comment the comment that I didn't care for was somebody said for the people that don't like rated books but still like to pretend they have one. So a guy one guy responded in it's more about having proper protection for the book in a slab, not the fact that it's graded. Why would I send a 3K valued book in the mail and hope it comes back months later for some company that isn't open about viewing their grading in person? So I said, exactly. I don't really care what grade they would assign it, but I want to protect the books in my collection that I feel are special or valuable. And then, you know, there's, there's all sorts of just comments. It's, it, it's, it gets silly so fast. It really does. I didn't know that yep. my not being a fan of CGC would make anybody butthurt. <laughs> anyway, how are you guys doing? Good. Good. How about you? Oh, I just gave you my, my, my adventure of the day. I'm doing fine. I give you my colonoscopy adventure and my uh, slabbing books adventures. Anyway, uh, any, any comic news before we start jumping into book talk? Anyone at all? Anyone? Not for uh, for me. Uh, I, I already mentioned my comic news. I finished off Captain Storm. Oh, congratulations. I know you've been after that one for a while. Yes, I'm just waiting for it's, it's it to arrive. <laughs> it's got to be really cool to have a want list of one book. <laughs> Mine is my action work, comics number one. My work here is done. I can move on now. <laughs> what about you scott any comics news oh my god i'm still a comics buying maniac but the, these days pretty much anything i'm getting i'm i've been posting it up in the group just to you know just to elicit reactions to you know let people know what you know what the latest purchases are and stuff like that so if the listeners want to know, hey, what's Scott buying or what's Scott reading these days or whatever, just uh, you know, go check out our Facebook group. If you listen to the show but you're not a member of the Facebook group, uh, I strongly encourage you to join and uh, converse, join the join the party, so to speak. You know, the more Welcome the merrier. Party, pal. Yeah, exactly. I, I would really, I'd like to boost our numbers higher in the in the group because I feel like our listenership is actually much higher than what we have in the group. So. Uh, yeah, I'd like uh, I'd like more of the the folks to make themselves known. Chime in on the on the bright side of that particular equation. I have noticed a steady increase in the number of downloads we're getting from the website. Good. Not you know not overwhelming, <laughs> but steady. Right. So. Well, that's good. I I mean I know I do my little bit to you know to try to promote us. Uh, you know whenever I see. Because I lurk in a lot of different comics-related groups on Facebook and different places, and 
you know, whenever I see somebody you know, mention a, a book that I know that we've talked about on the show, then, you know, I, I plug it, you know, hopefully not obnoxiously so, but, you know, I just like to throw up a little mention, hey, by the way, you know, Back to the Bins did, you know, did an episode on that or whatever and, you know, put put the link up. So hopefully that helps drive something, I would hope. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I try to do the same thing, but a lot of times, excuse me, when I see that, you know, that that's happening, it's not when I really have a chance or an opportunity to, to put a link. So then it right. goes by the wayside. Take a screenshot. That's what I do. Take a screenshot to remind, like if you see it on your phone, you know, you're, you know, you're uh, checking your phone at work or, you know, on the shitter or whatever the case may be, you know, take a, take a screenshot to remind yourself, Hey, stupid, when you get home tonight, you know, comment on this particular post or whatever. That's, that's what I do. And make sure you put underneath, you know, saw this while I was on the shitter. (laughs) I think that would be a value. So everyone can join in. (laughs) <laughs> well are we ready to jump into this one uh, sure why not are we going old book and dc or newer book and marvel you you pick it i i, li- I kind of like doing them in uh in uh, chronological order myself but that that's just the ocd in me i think all right well i'm going to give a little background because uh, Scott had said, I, I picked a book and Scott said something about it and, and no uh, pre-written synopsis, you know, no stealing this shit or whatever. And naturally my middle finger just kept pushing its way up as, a, you know, <laughs> as, 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 as I was reading it. You should so, get that looked at, you know. In, in defiance of Scott, I, I, I went for the semi-defiance. I I'm not going to read a pre-written synopsis done by somebody else, but I'm also not going to re- read a pre-written synopsis by me. I'm going to do this off the top of my head, Dr. Bill style. What are you going to do about that? Oh, Jesus. You know I got to be to bed in like 36 minutes, right? Well, if, if we're lucky, I'm through the second page by then. <laughs> so I chose Mr. Miracle number one from April of 1971. And if people look at my recently slabbed books, they'll see that that is one of them. Because uh, I think it's a, a pretty cool book and I think it's got some value to it. And I wanted to slab away. Uh, it, it's The cover is by Jack Kirby and Vince Coletta. The it, story is written by Jack Kirby. It is penciled by Jack Kirby. It is inked by Vince Coletta. It's colored by Jack Kirby, and it's edited by, of all people, Jack Kirby. So, uh, so I would this say is a Jack Kirby book, is what you it's, it's a Jack Kirby joint. Okay, I just want to make sure. And the cover shows Mr. Miracle in what what I should think is a garish costume, but I think it's kind of cool. Uh, and he's strapped to a uh, rocket that's taking off. He says, my enemies think that escape is from this is impossible, but they're in for a rude shock. Meanwhile, somebody's waving a fist and saying, goodbye, Mr. Miracle. You've lost your wager and your life. And then in the boxes, it says he cheats death. He defies man. No trap can hold him. Super escape artist to the making of a legend, along with a, a, another box that says Kirby's here. So the, this was a... Uh, a well-anticipated run by Kirby. And if, if you've been listening to 
some of the episodes Scott and I have uh, done talking collecting, and actually in Dave and I as well, uh, a lot of the books that I've been targeting have been Kirby's books when he was over at DC and Kirby's books when he was doing solo work at Marvel. Uh, I, I've decided like those are books I really wanted to fill out in my collection. So the first first page in Dr. Bill fashion, I'll spend 20 minutes going over this page. Uh, it, it mentions at the top is, is he a master of spectacular trickery or is he something more? You will have to decide when you confront the strangest, most incredible hero ever to appear in comics. You'll see what he does. You'll wonder how he does it. But always waiting in the wings are the two greatest enemies, the men who challenge him and death himself. So it starts off with a Mr. Miracle, uh, and he's being uh, put into a uh, some sort of a trap by Oberon, his assistant, who is a little person. And as he is, there's a young man who's looking on and... It's basically that he's practicing his art of escape. So Oberon puts him into a cabinet and, you know, basically locks all the doors and then takes a flamethrower and lights it on fire. The guy who's passing by comes running over, uses his coat to try and put out the fire. And while he does, Mr. Miracle bursts from the cabinet and... Basically, yes, invites, thanks the guy for his help, but tells him he didn't need it. He introduces himself as Thaddeus Brown, and the young man introduces himself as Scott Free. And I'm going to say right off the bat, I always thought Scott Free was one of those like kind of dopey names because it's just too related to what he is. Until I read in here where he explained that they kind of just picked names at the orphanage to to kind of kill the boredom and everything and. That's where he got that name, and it kind of makes sense that it's not, you know, something that his parents gave him. And if it was something he was always fascinated with escaping and such, you know, it would make sense. Anyway, as they're talking, they're approached by some real goonish looking guy and his three very strangely clad uh, minions. And they are confronting the original Mr. Miracle. And as they do so, finally, they've they've had enough and. Mr. Miracle and Scott take the, take out the uh, the four guys, uh, including with a George Reeves clanging of two of their heads together, which I always enjoy. Uh, and then we we get, you know, as as they're reveling in their victory, we cut to the to the uh, I guess lair of their boss, Steel Hand. One of the silliest gimmicks I've seen in quite some time. He's a gentleman whose hand was removed and replaced with steel. And just to show us how he uses it, he happens to have a solid bar of titanium in his lair that he decides to punch and crush into into many pieces. Now, I'm going to question that right off the bat. Why does it have rivets in it? it? That was what I was going to say as well. First of all, why do you have it there? Because... It really seems stupid to go get titanium just so you can smash it. And also, yeah, why does it have rivets? That's a very good question that I do not have an answer for. Maybe the artist and the writer weren't in touch. Oh, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. So <laughs> they go they go back to uh, Thaddeus's home where uh, Scott is in Thaddeus's son's room. And, you know, just clunky. It's, oh, 
this this is clearly a young man's room. I'm like really? <laughs> what is it like? Pictures One of shelves and stuff. So uh, they they go over his history and he talks about you know his his life as a an escape artist and uh, he starts to train Scott, puts him into uh, chains. And Scott does something that surprises them, where all of a sudden the chains kind of just explode off of him, and they don't know how he did it. Uh, he explains that he has uh, some machinery, including an intense magnetic repulsion device that made the chains come apart like that. So we find out that Thaddeus has a bet with the Steel Hand, that the Steel Hand said something about putting him in a trap that he can't get out of. Uh, and he's practicing now to make sure he's, his reflexes and his abilities are totally honed. So now he's doing another one where he's chained to a pole. And while he's chained to a pole, Oberon has got a giant ball that he's going to release, which is going to roll down and crush him against the pole. Just as he's letting uh, the ball go, uh, a sniper shoots Thaddeus and kills him. Uh, but not knowing that, Scott sees the ball coming and uses his power uh, his power glove of some sort to make the ball divert and not hit into him. But Thaddeus passes away from the bullet wound that he got. So the <laughs> steel hand is reveling in his victory and does an arm wrestling contest with a robot who he crushes the, the robot's hand, and that's over. Now, another question there. If you have a steel hand, and that hand is attached somewhere at your forearm, and you get into an arm wrestling contest with somebody who's, like, ridiculously strong, isn't the area where it's grafted to regular human arm going to be at severe risk? Anyway. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's six million dollar man syndrome. You know, I, I think we talked about that in the past, you know, where Steve Austin would reach down and lift up a car so Oscar could change the blown out tire on his car. Well, it's like only his arm is bionic, you know, it's, unless like his skeletal structure and his spine was also reinforced. <laughs> he'd, he'd end up giving himself one nasty hernia at the very least, you know, so, yeah, yeah. it doesn't quite work. Yeah, exactly. Well, the next issue, the steel hand is called Stumpy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then as he's reveling in his victory over the robot, Mr. Miracle jumps in and they're shocked because he's dead. But uh, he's to he tells him the age of miracles isn't over yet, steel hand. Look again. And they they basically renew the bet that they had where he says he's going to give him an, a, a uh, trap that he can't get out of. And that's when we revisit what we saw on the cover. They attach him, they chain him to a, to a uh, rocket ship that they send into space. And when it gets high enough, it explodes. And Steel Hand says, it was a weird one, all right, but he was human. And humans don't have nine lives. Steel Hand is still the top man. Remember that, you birds. So he talks like he's from a 1930s gangster movie, by the way. <laughs> uh, so then he goes back to his office and Mr. Miracle's sitting at his desk, very much alive. Steel Hand 
crushes the desk with his hand, but doesn't actually do anything to Mr. Miracle. Uh, Mr. Miracle uses his hyper sound intensifier gloves to break metal. Oh, he explains he had used those to break the metal chains on him. And then he uses them to disable Steel Hand, ties him basically up in a bed sheet uh, with his hand being stunned, and then gasses him. And at the, the story ends, Oberon is saying that he'd be proud to continue to assist Scott Free now in the role of Mr. Miracle. And that's the end of the first part. Now, what this issue does not have, and I thought it was in all of the Kirby DC issues and, and later on when he returns to Marvel, is the two-page spread on pages two and three that became like a real signature thing for him. Uh, oh, and we don't yeah. have that in this. So that was one of the first things that caught my eye. Um, the dialogue is very stiff. It's unrealistic. And that's always been one of the things I've said about Kirby's work. He doesn't really, uh, you know, he, 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 dialogue was not his strength. Uh, the goons in the uniforms are silly, but it was kind of a trope of the day that, you know, all, all of the uh, nameless people who assist the bad guys had to be like these, you know, weird costume wearing guys. Uh, I like the explanation for uh, for for the name Scott Free. Uh, I have to say, Steel Hand is one of the dopiest villains I could possibly imagine. It it come it, it to me, Kirby is so amazing with his imagination and the things he came up with. When you when you think of Marvel Cosmic, when you think of the DC Fourth World stuff, uh, and you know so much more. There's, there's so many things he, he came up with that were amazing. To think that he came up with Steel Hand is almost bothersome. Because that, that's like a character you would expect like a six-year-old to come up with in their comic book. <laughs> but anyway, you know, it is what it is. Uh, and then I just, you know, I, I laughed at the steel bar being left, or the titanium bar in his office with the rivets in it. Um, but overall, I got to say, I, I got a kick out of this. I don't know if I ever actually read this issue before. I think this may be the first time I ever read it. And How long have you had it? Well, I only bought it. I, I mean, I, I'm working off a digital copy of it that I've had for quite a while now. But I only physically owned a copy of this for about two or three weeks now. So, but this is the first time I ever read it. And... Uh, I'm glad I did, and I'm looking forward to reading more of them. What'd you guys think? You know, this is my first time reading this particular issue. I don't know that I've ever read or owned any of the Kirby issues of Mr. Miracle, um, but I have all of, you know, so there was the the much ballyhooed return of Mr. Miracle when he came. Cause I, I think there was a hiatus in the book. I could be wrong about that, but Kirby, um, you know, starts the title and I think he's with it through the first, um, 18. And then I think there was a break, um, as I re remember it anyway. Um, and then it, it, you know, he, he came back. I remember the, the house ads, um, for it. And by that time, I, I knew him only because of uh, DC Comics Presents number 12, Superman and, and Mr. Miracle, which was by uh, 
Steve Englehart and Rich Buckler. Fantastic issue. I mean, beautiful art. I remember the story was really good. And I liked it because I didn't know anything about Mr. Miracle, you know, walking into that issue. But I was under the impression just by the way that issue plays out that he can basically hold his own against Superman. So he kind of intrigued me. And I always thought he had a cool look and a cool costume and, and all that, although I, I always was kind of confused as to what exactly his his power set was or whatever. I didn't quite I, I never really got a good handle on that. But anyway, because I was familiar with the character from that. Then whenever issues uh, of, you know, 19 through 25, you know, the return era would pop up, I would I would scarf those up because I think it's an even split between like the first several issues where Steve Englehart writing and um, Marshall Rogers on the art. And then like the latter half was Steve Gerber writing and um, Michael Golden, I think. So, I mean, fantastic art and and really good stories and, you know, the whole fourth world stuff and all that. And I, I really like that stuff. But just, you know, because I always had that that, you know, that kind of prejudice against Jack Kirby growing up, um, I just never went back and, and checked out any of the early stuff. So this was intriguing to look at now. Um, now that I've gained, a you know, a, a healthier respect for Jack Kirby just to kind of see the the true origins of this character and and how little I really did know about Mr. Miracle and um, that it kind of destroyed some preconceptions that I had uh, about the character because I I had never read, you know, his, his origin or, you know, the, the earliest adventures, probably the biggest shock to me was finding out that um, Oberon didn't come with him. For some reason, I always thought Oberon came from Apocalypse as well. I thought he was like, like his like childhood chum or like, uh, you know, almost like his Alfred type of type of character. I didn't realize that Oberon's just like this, you know, just a dude, you know, just an Earth guy that was already with, you know, the original Mister Miracle. If I knew that, I'd forgotten it. So, you know, if I ever read it in like Who's Who or something, I'd completely forgotten. I just you know, by the time I met the character, you know, years later in, in other, you know, further down Mr. Miracle's timeline, you know, Oberon was just there. And because he was there with Scott and with Big Barda and, you know, I remember him, you know, facing all the the fourth world shit and all that. I just assumed he was part of that world. I didn't realize he he wasn't. So that was kind of interesting Same for me. me. Yeah, and me that, as well. It was kind of neat learning all that. Yeah, I always I thought that he that that I, I knew that he was in the orphanage. I don't remember how I knew that, but I I always thought that somehow he was rescued from the orphanage by Oberon, and that Oberon raised him from that point. Right, right. And that would that was I guess myself kind of creating a history that didn't exist. Right. Well, my my exposure to Mister Miracle was much later. I think it was in the. Uh, Post-Crisis, the Action Comics run where they had him and Big Barda show up early right. on. I think it would, the, the book with Sleaze in it. But, oh, yeah, uh, where, uh, where Superman and Big Barda make a porno, yeah. Right, right. That that stuck in my mind for some reason. Well, for some reason. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I as well thought Oberon 
came from New Genesis or Apocalypse. I, I was never a big fan of the whole uh, uh, Fourth World stuff, so I was, you know, I never looked into it. I had no idea there was an original Mr. Miracle. I thought that was just him. So there, this there, was I know there's also a, a Mr. Miracle that is after him. I can't right. remember what the character yeah. is, what what the name of the character is, but I've definitely seen it. I haven't really read much of it though. I don't really know how that all went about. Uh, you know, you you could put uh, Mister Miracle on the long list of characters that I think is pretty cool, but I really don't know a heck of a lot about. Yeah, uh, and, the same way. And with with that, you know, with Volume One of his series now, uh, I've pretty much. I pretty much acquired the entire series with the exception of uh, issue number two, I think is the only one I still need. So any, any other like thoughts about the individual portions of the book? There there was something I'm just looking through the copy I have. I can't find it, but I thought he says the original Thaddeus says at some point about his son being a big fan of Superman. Yeah. And I don't know how that works, because if he died in Korea, which ended in 53 and this is 71, the numbers just completely don't add up. You know how it works? Comics. Okay. (laughs) Lois is looking pretty good for her age. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I didn't I didn't even catch that. But yeah, that's a good point cuz that would that would put 18 years between the son's death and the year that it's supposed to be and this if it's supposed to be contemporary times, which I figure it it should be. So yeah, that uh <laughs> That place is Superman much older than the uh, the you know eternal twenty nine that he's supposed to be. So yeah, that that doesn't that doesn't wash. It's clearly George Reeve if that's the. Uh... <laughs> well, he does bang people's heads together. Wouldn't it have been great if the bad guys had the word goon on their shirts? <laughs> Almost like in in the actual Superman TV show. I mean, uh, yeah, in the Superman TV show when he'd come in. Oh, no, excuse me. I'm just being at the Batman TV show. We'd have, like, goon number one and goon number mm-hmm. two. Well, it occurs to me that other than that mention of Superman, you know, if you take that mention of Superman out of this, this could very, very, very easily be a Marvel comic. There, there's really not anything to distinguish it as a DC comic. Because, I mean, uh, you know, with it being all Kirby... And the way it's illustrated and the way it's written and everything, it doesn't, it, it's not necessarily a part of the DC universe yet, you know, except for that mention of, of Superman. So this could have been published, you know, under, you know, by either company at this point, which I found kind of interesting. Because up till this point, you know, DC and Marvel had each had a very distinct feel in their books. And then suddenly there's this that, that you know, is blurring that line between them, you know. But, you know, you, this this is basically at the beginning of Kirby's DC run. 
So I guess it would make sense that, uh, that, you know, coming from Marvel and working as long as he did with Marvel and the Marvel characters. And, and my understanding is this was a concept, this whole fourth world thing was a concept that Kirby had while he was still working for Marvel. And it just happened that, you know, when things started to fall apart with his relationships there, he decided to keep that one, you know, put away until he was able to use it to his own benefit. Uh, and I right. guess if, if if this was, you know, modern days, uh, he would have gone to some independent car- uh, company where he could have started his fourth world and retained the rights to them instead of selling it off to D.C. But well, that's one of the is. things that's occurred to me over time is that, um, I don't know, I, I run the risk of, of, you know, comic book blasphemy and even asking this question, but. You know, later on in his life, that's exactly what Kirby did. You know, he he went to a number of different uh, indie companies and basically, you know, created or tried to create his own little fiefdoms and his own little universes and everything, you know, to varying degrees of success or, you know, varying degrees of lack of success, depending on how you look at it, because it seems like most of that stuff is is really forgotten and is strictly like 50 cent bin fodder these days. Yeah, so we have some I, Pacific comic stuff. Uh, was it captain? I can't even think of the name now. Yeah. It was like, you know, captain glory and silver streak and Satan six and stuff like that. And I mean, nobody really remembers those titles today, you know, and, and they don't, they don't go for anything. They don't command any sort of, you know, back issue, uh, you know, prestige or, or, you know, monetary amounts or anything. So it just makes me wonder if, if he had gone that route as early as this, you know, say in the, in the seventies, you know, the early seventies and had saved this fourth world stuff and not published it either Marvel or DC, would it even be remembered today? You know, would, would people still be talking about it or what, or was he still, a hot enough thing at that time that he could have overcome the fact that it wasn't Marvel or it wasn't DC and, and it would still be lauded. I'm, I'm just curious because uh, you know, I'm with Dave. I, I've never been the biggest fan of this fourth world stuff. And, and I know this is going to be complete heresy to a lot of listeners, but to me, I think the best stuff that's been done with that fourth world stuff has actually been done by, by other people that picked up the pieces and, and, you know, some of the, characters and the plot lines later but having read most of the fourth world you know the original um kirby stuff or at least you know a good chunk of it eh, i'm not all that impressed with it actually this is the most impressive one that i've read so far um i liked this a lot because it wasn't overly weird or bizarre or goofy or strange i mean yeah the dialogue is stilted and what's that steel hand well, no, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, you've got a goofy villain and you've got goofy dialogue, but I mean, it's not that really weird shit where you're, where you're, your brain hurts by the end of it. And you're going, what, what the hell did I just like, I read Eternals a while back and I, other than the movie was about to come out, I, I don't know why I suffered through it because it was really a, a really difficult read and it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. And I feel that way about most of his solo stuff, you know, post leaving, you know, when he didn't have that mitigating influence of, of Stan Lee. 
Um, but this one was, was kind of, uh, remarkable in that sense of, um, I didn't feel that way about this one. I mean, yeah, it's a little, you know, it's a little goofy, but it's not, it's just not, it's not whacked out like some of the other stuff that, that he did, um, you know, after he, he separated from, from Stan Lee. So for that aspect, I kind of liked it. I've said on many occasions in, in our conversations that I'm, you know, I'm, I think I'm, a significantly bigger Kirby advocate than you. Uh, oh, definitely. And and I I love his stuff, and and I get a real kick. Uh, and and a lot of it is 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 after the fact, but I get a real kick out of the stuff that he did by himself. But but that's always with my eyes wide open and understanding that you know that a lot of it's batshit crazy. Um, I mean, yes. it just is, and and it's. It's you know his his ability to write dialogue was was not really all that strong, uh, and and he he needed I've said so many times he needed the grounding influence of Stan Lee that that he got uh, that that made a big difference, but I think as a concept man he was unparalleled, and Absolutely. I think if if you know when you when you look at you know look at just what the, what you said a couple of minutes ago how. You know, yeah, I, I really like the fourth world stuff that other people developed from it. He came up with a concept and then somebody else ran with it. And, and then you start saying, wow, you know, that's really good. A lot of the stuff in Marvel, a lot of the, you know, the cosmic stuff that all, you know, those seeds were all planted by Kirby. Uh, and then somebody else yeah. took it and, and expanded it and, and made it great. So, you know, it, it's it's the great concepts that are there. I think the character of Mr. Miracle is fascinating. I, I, I love the idea of an escape artist superhero. I, I just think it's really cool. I haven't read that much of it, though, like I said earlier. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm I'm really interested in reading more. And as I've gotten older, uh, as I've become more and more decrepit, I, I've found that that he, those those issues that he wrote, I get a much bigger kick out of them than I did in the 70s when they came out. I remember, you know, being a Marvel guy from you know most of my life i remember you know when i started reading the books kirby was over at dc so i wasn't really reading his stuff to speak of and then i remember them starting to promote the fact that he was coming back to marvel and he was going to write captain america and he was going to draw captain america and this is the guy that created cap you know one of the, the co-creators of captain america i thought this was the greatest thing ever then he started coming out with the issues and i was thinking what the hell is this yeah you know, exactly I, and, and and it was like you know I, I I read the Black Panther stuff and I was like you know what what's going on here I don't I don't get it it's not the kind of comic books I want to read but now as again as an older reader I love reading this stuff I get a big kick out of it and I wanted to sit I've I've read a lot of the Fourth World stuff but I've never done like a read through on it and that's one of the things I want to do is uh, you know put together a reading order on the fourth world stuff and read it from beginning to end of his run. And, and I've been trying to acquire most of it. I've gotten all of the issues of the forever people. I've gotten all but one issues of, of miracle man. Uh, I still need, I think about five issues of the new gods. And that's another run that didn't go that long. It was only, I think 18 or 19 issues. So I'm, I'm missing the ones that are going to be the big ticket items, unfortunately on that. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm slowly acquiring them. I have uh, one issue of Jimmy Olsen uh, that he did that that I don't have, and unfortunately, I believe it's the first full appearance of Darkseid, so it goes for uh. 
for for bigger bucks than I want to pay. So that may be why I end up not having to, the the wherewithal to get it unless I find it at a you know a very reasonable price. Um, but anyway, I, you know I've been acquiring all these issues and I've been really enjoying them. Uh, I'm trying to think what else, what other series he had going at DC that were unrelated to that. Um, he did the he, he had started that issue uh, that series Sandman, uh, and I have I have all those issues. Those can be gotten on the cheap, by the way. Um, right. What else? Uh, the uh, the Demon series. I think I'm only missing two or three issues of that. Unfortunately, I'm missing the first issue, which is going to be the pricey one. Um, but uh, but I've been acquiring all of these series, and and I've also been acquiring his stuff from Marvel. I have most of the issues of the Black Panther run. I have all of the issues of his of his Captain America run. Um, I, I'm missing, I think, the two last issues of Devil Dinosaur. And the only reason I'm missing them is because I think there's nine issues in total. I had issues one through seven, and I thought that was the complete series. <laughs> and I only realized recently that I'm missing two issues, so now I have to find them. I assume those will not be all that pricey. But I've been acquiring all I don't these know. There is a There is a show out now, so there, it might be. I'm not sure. I don't know if the show has driven up the back issues at all or not. That's possible. I don't know. I mean, there's there's some series that, that just surprise me with, with their value, you know. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we've talked about how uh, issue 27 of Captain Marvel has es- escaped me because it's the first appearance of Star Fox, which still has me scratching my head. Uh, <laughs> I, I recently got an issue. I got uh, issue 94 of the Fantastic Four, which cost me more than I anticipated because it's the first appearance of Agatha Harkness. And it's like, come on. Uh. These are right. not pivotal characters. I know they're going to have a series on TV, but who cares? It's you know, it's it shouldn't be you know, it shouldn't be more money because of that. I mean, I didn't spend crazy money on it, but you know, more than I wanted to. Uh, so, you know, it, it's it's something that that I'm definitely more into as an as an older reader than I was as a kid. But to bring it back to the whole point I was making is conceptually he's got so many great things that he came up with and if you can be a little patient with the clunky dialogue and be a little patient with some kind of silly plot twists and turns and really focus on the concept and where it goes and how they build on it later i think there's some gold in them their hills as you get older your taste change and you become more patient you know uh, i found that with the golden age books when I was much younger, you know, I tried to read them and it was like, oh, this is boring. Now I find it fantastic. Sometimes yeah, you, you got to You've been dip. on a real roll with those. Yeah. I'm 36. I'm up to 1941 now. Got to dip your toe in again. See mm. if your opinions have changed. Right. I'll agree with that. I've had, I've had much the same experience with uh, with some comic reading lately. So, uh, do we have anything else on this particular issue? I'd say the uh, Steel Hand could have been ripping off also the Iron Major who came out in 65 in Sergeant Rock. Oh, right, right. I'm unfamiliar with that particular character. Oh, we could cover some of those issues in the future because I know how you guys love war books. I think we've <laughs> we've been patient with war books. You know, they're not. I, I I get a kick out of some of them. I mean, some of them are just so uh, predictable. 
because you know what they had to write them for young people so they could only go so far on the you know graphic violence and such you know i i, I seem to remember the, there was a book out called war is hell and uh you know you would think that would be extremely graphic but i'm pretty sure it wasn't no no i think we covered an issue with that <laughs> anyway i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna hit on this issue and give you my uh my ratings i think I think this is an iconic cover. I love this cover. I'm going to give it an A. The interior art is not quite as good as the cover, but it's pretty solid. You know, it's got what uh, what, what Chris Tyler describes as the uh, Kirby dra- drawing ugly people better than anybody else in the world. And, and the villains in this are really ugly people, and it, it's very well done. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's as good as the cover, but I think it's pretty solid. It's all clean. And, you know, the storytelling is always good. So I'm going to give it a just a, you know, a real solid B. Uh, and the story is a little out there with some of the things, but it, it was easy to follow. It was kind of fun to follow. And it all made sense to me. It all kind of played well, except for the rivets and the titanium. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to give it an A on the, on the story. And I'm going to give it, you know, an A minus overall. I I would give the uh, the cover uh, a B plus. I think it's very well done. I really like it. The art is clear. It's bright. Um, so, like I said, I give it a B plus. The interior art I find is okay. I'm not a big fan of the style, but it's functional. It's identifiable. It's much better than a lot of stuff you can find out there. I would give the yard uh, and the inside a B minus, C plus average between the two. The story I liked. I thought the story was good. I knew nothing about Mr. Miracle, so I came in cold. I kind of like how they haven't exposed his whole backstory in the first issue that there'll be more reveals, you know, as you go along. And I gave the story a B plus. So I would say my overall rating on this is uh, uh, a B, a solid B on the book. Uh, I really like the cover. I also agree that I, I think it's an iconic cover. Um, my only real issue with the cover is uh, an issue I had with Mr. Miracle throughout the entire book is that he has no nose. Um, I'm not used to seeing him that way. Um, I know later on when when other artists are on this title, um, he is depicted with having a nose. So seeing him like this, it, it just looks really bizarre to me. Um, especially the you know, the the opening splash. He he looks like uh, another character that I'm I'm having trouble placing. Like I don't know, like maybe like um, ambush bug or so, somebody. I don't know. He just he looks funny. But I just I see that opening splash, and you know instead of the the title being uh, murder missile trap it should be i have no nose and i must sneeze or something it's just <laughs> he just looks really funny but anyway the cover i really do like i'm going to say an a minus on the cover i think it's a, a really sharp cover um the interior art 
this is hard to judge because I, I'm just not a huge Kirby fan artistic wise. Um, and of course I, I would love to know the behind the scenes on how something like this got put together because here you got Jack Kirby. He's just come over to DC and after years of having his art sabotaged so viciously on the mighty Thor, now here he is over at DC, and what do they do? They saddle him with the same damn inker that sabotaged all his stuff on Thor. And while I don't think Vinny does as bad a hatchet job on this that he did on Thor, it's still Vinny Coletta, and <laughs> it just, I don't know, it's just not Vinny's best stuff. And as a matter of fact, rather than using his usual like thin line and, and really like, like really speeding through and cutting corners and all that. It's like he laid on the inks extra hard this time. So everything's very thick and very black and it kind of muddies up the art a bit. Um, and then I don't know who colored it, but some of the color choices are a little, I don't know. It's a little garish. It's a little bright, which works for Mr. Miracle himself in his color, you know, his costume and his color scheme and everything. But it's like it's applied to everything. Everything is just like really, you know, garish colors and bright and and very kind of cartoony. And so I, I wasn't crazy about the color scheme on it. So overall on the art, I, I hate to say it, I'm, I'm going to go a C minus on the art. Um, cause it's not bad. I mean, it, it tells the story and all that, but it's just, I don't, I don't think it's particularly uh, visually appealing. Um, if you know what I mean, you know, aesthetically pleasing, um, but it's functional. It gets the job done. And then the story, I, I enjoyed the story. I mean, goofy villain aside, goofy dialogue aside, um, it is a good story. And I, I liked, you know, gaining this insight into the character and you know, the early, you know, the earliest adventure and all that, because I, I learned some things about him that I just was not aware of. And it's a good setup. And as Dave said, you know, you, you don't he doesn't spill the beans right out of the gate about what's going on with Scott. You know, we meet him and clearly he's employing gadgets and stuff, but we don't we, we don't yet get any real knowledge of just exactly what a what a grand backstory he has you know being one of the new gods and you know the the adopted son of uh of dark side and all that sort so it's you know there's a whole lot more grandeur lurking behind the scenes that's going to come along later that's that's not even really hinted at yet here it's you know he's still pretty much a mystery and that's intriguing enough to you know that if you if this was brand new and you knew absolutely nothing, I think it's enough to where you know you'd want to learn more, you'd want to keep going with the character. So, I thought that was cool. The other the only other quibble I really had about the story, other than the uh, the rivets and the supposedly solid piece of metal, was um, he ends up wrapping up Steel Hand at the end of this thing with basically a giant bed sheet. Now, he says uh, he has a line here. He says uh, it may have made a shoot for me, um, but it will wrap you up in a package for the law. Now, is he saying this was a shoot like he used this to escape at the end or is that's he the saying, way I read it? That's how I read it, too. I mean, I guess you could interpret this dialogue as meaning it may have made a shoot for me if I had employed it. But I'm reading it as he's he's literally saying it. It was my parachute. If and I'm thinking true, he came to Steel Hand's office straight from having escaped from that 
trap, which would make sense that he right. have that with him still. Right, but they were there. This wasn't a situation like on the old Batman TV series where they set him in the death trap and then they, you know, they buggered off to go do something else and just left him hoping that he would die. They're standing right there when the rocket blows up so they don't see a little man parachute down. That That's the only thing. It didn't make any sense to me that if he did parachute down as opposed because there's a on the page before that he's using jets and he says something about he had jetted across town or something and i'm like okay i can see that but then you turn the page and when he wraps up steel hand with the with the parachute he's saying oh this is my parachute and i'm like well then you would have been observed a parachute a guy floating down in a parachute's a pretty observable thing from from any distance and they're standing right there when the rocket blows up so that to me didn't quite jibe like how did they miss that essentially you know that that he, that's how he escaped so my, I, my, my head cannon is they missed it because they're stupid <laughs> oh shoot we missed them i guess but i mean that's that's a minor quibble um story-wise i think i would give the story a solid b i i enjoyed it i thought it was it was really cool and it's uh you know it's it's fun for its time and i i mean this is one of the one of if not the best uh kirby as writer stories that i i can recall having read so yeah for for that alone i i was pretty impressed with it because looking at that credits page and, you know, written, drawn, everything by Jack. And I was just like, Oh God, what am I in for type of thing? But I, I ended up enjoying it quite a bit. So yeah. Overall grade. Um, I will say a B plus is an overall grade. Cause I, I dug it and I thought it was pretty cool. Cool. All right. So that's our older issue. All right. We got what do you for- have for us, Scott? All right, so what I'm bringing to the table is, from Marvel Comics, RoboCop. Second series, yes, second series, because the first series was an adaptation of the movie, which I think was three-issue adaptation, I think. Um, which, in itself, I think was just chopping up a uh, like one of those magazine-size movie adaptations, I think. I don't know. I don't. I don't own that. Um, but this is issue one of the second series of RoboCop, basically continuing the adventures of RoboCop beyond the movie. Um, little backstory on this. I purchased this very, very, very recently on a complete whim for three reasons. One, because RoboCop. Two, because number one. And three, because 50 cents. And I figured, eh, what the hell, I, you know. For 50 cents, it's a first issue and it's RoboCop. I'll give it a try. Oh, and also not, you know, not to uh, downplay. I really like the uh, the writer on this one as well. When I saw who it was written by, I was like, okay, and now I'm a little more inclined to risk 50 cents on this. So anyway, Scott, this is, Scott would you have bought it for a dollar though? Uh, I might, I might have. That's such I a RoboCop have. question. <laughs> <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah, I might have, but. That's it, that's more in retrospect have, after having read it. I think I don't know at the time if it had been a buck, I probably would have passed. I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but um, is it worth a dollar? I think I think it's worth a buck. <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. Uh, this is the March 1990 issue, on sale on the stands on January 16th, 1990, according to uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Cover price on this was a dollar fifty. What? Co- oh, 
the cover on it is by uh, an artist I am completely unfamiliar with, Lee Sullivan. Um, and Kim DeMalder did the inks. They are also the interior artists on the book. And the cover is uh, is pretty cool. It's just uh, it, it's kind of a poster shot. Now, this is such a, a thing in comics today. But back during this time, that wasn't really so much the case. But there's not really any dialogue or anything. It's just uh, it's like a poster shot of RoboCop doing a very RoboCop stance with his gun while there's these uh, weirdos in the background and everything. And it just says, based on the major motion picture, RoboCop, the future of law enforcement, first action-packed issue. And that's pretty much all the verbiage that's on the cover of it. The story is entitled Combat Zone. That's combat spelled with the letter K. Um, That's important, I guess. I don't know. It comes up several times during the issue. Uh, Also, I'm going to speak directly to a listener if he is listening. Mike, Mike Voyles, if you are listening to this, I just want to point out, buddy, you know I love your site. But there's an error. The page uh, on your website for this particular issue misspells the title as Bombat Zone. Bombat with a B instead of a C or a K. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, and it actually does look a little bit like that when you look at the uh, the title page in this. That K is easy, easily mistaken for a B by the weird way it's uh, inked and colored and everything. So I can I can kind of see where that uh, you know how that mistake could be made. Um, so anyhow, this is, uh, uh, written by the sadly recently departed, uh, Alan Grant. He passed away last year. Uh, he's the writer on this, uh, again, with pencils by Lee Sullivan and inks by Kim DeMalder. So here's your synopsis on this one. In old Detroit, somewhere a crime is happening. Hoverbike riding punks run down an old man and are intent on causing him grievous bodily harm when they are ordered to drop their weapons and their shotgun-wielding leader is disarmed by a bullet to the back of the hand courtesy of our hero, Robocop. The gang opens fire on the police, uh, the cyborg policeman, but the bullets just bounce off him as he wades into the gang. Unseen by everyone involved, a mysterious trench-coated man films the action on his Sony camcorder for someone called Darkstone. The lead punk holds the old man hostage with a knife to his throat and orders Robocop to back off. But thanks to his handy-dandy targeting computer, Robocop shoots to disarm the punk without harming his hostage, and the old man runs clear. The mysterious trench-coated man decides he's seen enough and lobs what looks like a grenade into the fray but it's actually a smart gun. Now think of one of those like little flying remote balls from Star Wars, it's kind of like that. And it shoots both the punk and the old man before Robocop can blast it. Robocop radios for a medevac while he pursues the perpetrator via his infrared slash thermographic vision, but the trail goes cold. Returning to the crime scene, he finds a damaged ID card on the injured old man, whose name turns out to be Pokey Yule, if you can believe that. Uh, that leads him to a combat, with a K, arena. Think of ultimate fighting with those assholes from the Running Man movie. That's kind of what's going on here at the, at the combat arena. Uh, where he asks around about Yule and finds evidence from the likewise damaged ID card of a defeated fighter of foul play. We get a brief interlude in the OCP Tower senior staff meeting room from the film, 
uh, between who I'm assume is supposed to be the old man, you know, the head of the company guy from the first movie and Johnson, who was uh, Bob Morton's assistant in the first film, uh, where they discuss how RoboCop is doing. And the old man not so subtly warns Johnson that should RoboCop not work out, that he has a friend at Nixco just raring to go with their own robot cops. Meanwhile, at police HQ, Officer Ann Lewis witnesses her ex-partner hauling in yet another dirtbag. This one cited for biting a police officer, in this, cape, uh, in this case, Robocop himself, with a set of sharp-toothed mechanical jaws, which Robocop prompt, promptly dislocates. Lewis and Robocop share a brief moment in which she expresses concern for him and asks if he's still brooding about his lost humanity which is both kind of touching and kind of stupid at the same time. I mean, of course the guy is. He died and was brought back and made to go oh, to work. You're still <laughs> bitching about that, huh? <laughs> you get killed at work one day and we're going to listen to it now again. <laughs> so Robocop is ordered to grab some downtime and recharge. So we witness him remove his helmet and he takes a little nap in his power chair but he has a recap nightmare about his former life and death as Officer Alex Murphy at the hands of Clarence Boddicker. See the first film. One of the techs attending him reports an excess neural discharge as Robocop dreams. A robot that thinks like a man, he says. Poor guy. Still, says the other tech, I guess that's what makes him unique. Elsewhere, the trench-coated man, name of King, supplies vital information of RoboCop's flesh and metal interface to Mr. Darkstone, head of Nixco, which provides the missing element in finally getting their own robot men up and running. Later, on his way back to the combat with a K arena, RoboCop detours down a seedy back alley where he shoots a drug dealer in the head and then proceeds inside to interrogate King about the damaged ID cards and his knowledge, if he has any, of who tried to kill Pokey Yule. King panics and runs into the ring, ordering the combatants with a K to attack Robocop, but the cyborg policeman makes short work of them and hauls King into custody. Watching all of this live on TV, Darkstorm uh, orders his lackeys to activate Nixco's own cadre of robot men. The issue concludes with Robocop attempting to return to police HQ in his squad car with the unconscious King in custody when he is stopped and surrounded by three vehicles. He exits his cruiser and confronts the Nixco robot men, telling him that uh, interference with the law is a serious offense. The robot men, however, order him to stand down and come with them. You are being very foolish, says Robocop. This is your last warning, uh, last warning. Surrender while you still can. Next issue, Murphy's Law. Now, my biggest question right out of the gate on this was uh, when I started looking things up as far as dates and things, I was trying to place this in like the RoboCop timeline. So the first RoboCop came out July 17th, 1987. The second movie was about to come out in six months from this issue in, in June of 1990. So that's three years. 
why the hell did they wait so long to publish this? I mean, RoboCop was was hot. I mean, that was a huge hit movie in in 87. So I know that they did, you know, the the adaptation and everything. But I'm just wondering, why did they wait? So is it because the sequel was coming that they figured, okay, now is the time? Or it's just it's kind of weird that they would wait so long. And then, of course, the the second movie, um, I don't think did all that well uh, from my memory. I know it critically it was it was panned, but I don't think financially it did all that well either. I think it did well enough just to get a number three made, but it (laughs) wasn't particularly good. I've never seen it, and uh, and I'm uh, intent to because I I actually this afternoon uh, when I got home from work I actually rewatched RoboCop um, just because this issue put me in mind of you know what a great movie that was so I I watched it and then uh, I watched about the first I don't know 15 minutes or so of uh, of RoboCop two before I ran out of time but I'm I'm gonna rewatch that I have not seen RoboCop two again since I saw it in the theater when it was brand new in 1990 so I figure. Maybe 33 years distance will will make me see it differently or something. But I hated that movie when I saw it in the theater. See, I didn't. Yeah, surprisingly, I didn't. Uh, I I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was great by any stretch, but I didn't think it was horrible. I didn't think it was bad. I just thought it was okay. Uh, and then you know it gets a lot of criticism, and I think it's one of these ones where the you know as it started rolling down the hill. Uh, it just picked up more and more momentum of people who were like, yeah, I hate it too. Um, you know, it was almost like it, it was almost as if it, the internet was around it so hated. Uh, <laughs> I just looked it up quickly on Wikipedia. It says the budget was 25 to 30 million and the box office was 45.7 million uh, U.S. So the formula at that time was if it makes one and a half times its cost it's profitable right so that would have made it profitable now i think it has to make like two and a half times just because of i don't even know i don't even understand why it has to make so much more something right. about the uh Mark, the, the foreign knowledge. market or something like that right. but well, uh, look look at the first movie though what did the first movie do because i don't think the budget was very high in the first movie and i think the first one did gangbusters if i remember i mean i remember it being the a first huge one hit. cost 13.7 million to make and it made 53.4 sure. so so it made you know a little over like three and a half times its cost right, right. so huh. it did do better i mean when now, i'm talking about the either, dollars that you get nowadays for obvious reasons had either of you ever read this or any other issue of the RoboCop ongoing series from Marvel? No. Not me, no. Because yeah, I, I was out of comics at this time. Oh, uh, okay. As as was I. Yeah, I, I never had it either. I you know, I this is one of those where I have seen issues in this in the cheap bins for years and years and years and just always just breezed right by them type of thing. But uh uh, full confession. I liked I liked this enough. I didn't think it was great, but uh, but it, you know it was it was intriguing and uh, you know it was enough for me to, to now I'll keep an eye out, you know, the type of thing to where you know I might like to check out subsequent issues. Um, just a couple of quick notes. I don't have a lot of notes on this one. I, I just I kind of got sucked into it and was just trying to see where you know where I felt like it was going or whatever, but uh. 
Uh, one thing that he does several times in this issue that I really liked, and every time I watch the movie, I, I think he should do more of, is when he's protecting his face from gunfire. Because much like Batman, you know, he's got that exposed part of his face that's not mm-hmm. covered by any armor or anything. So every time I watch the movie, I'm like, why don't they just shoot him in the face? And I like in this that he actually, you see him several times holding up his non-gun-wielding hand to protect his face. And so I thought that was pretty clever that somebody was thinking about that. Um, I have the greatest respect for uh, for Alan Grant. I always enjoyed his writing on just about anything I, I ever read that he did. Um, so I'm, I'm loath, especially now that he's no longer with us, I'm loath to say anything bad, but I have to point something out here that I'm curious if he ended up getting excoriated about in the, in the letters pages and subsequent issues. But on page seven, panel five, we're, we're getting those, uh, instead of like narration boxes or whatever, you're getting the, like the thoughts of the character. And in this case, it's RoboCop's thoughts and, you know, the commands that are going through his head, his programming and everything. We're, we're kind of privy to his his inner workings. And there's a part on uh, page seven, panel five, where uh, his directives flash up and it says uh, protect the innocent is directive. I think it says directive three, uh, mm-hmm. protect the innocent. It's not. It's protect. It's directive two because his mm-hmm. directives are. um to serve the public the tr- trust, protect the innocent, uh, uphold the law. So they messed up on that one. They've got the directives out of order. So I, I couldn't help but notice that. Um, I have absolutely no familiarity whatsoever with Lee Sullivan, but I kind of dug the art on this. I mean, you know, in it's it's in that '90s mold and everything, but it, it wasn't bad. I mean, I I really liked his. Uh, you know, his likenesses of, uh, of RoboCop and, you know, the action wasn't bad or, or whatever. Um, I mean, it's not the, the greatest thing out there, but for a licensed book, a lot of times the licensed books, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't seem like they put a hell of a lot of effort into them and it got worse down the line, um, you know, with subsequent licensed books where they just, they weren't putting a lot of effort into them. I felt like, but th- this wasn't bad. I, I kind of enjoyed the art in this. Um, I, you know, like I say, I like Alan Grant a lot. I like his writing, and and this felt authentically RoboCop enough, you know, for the first issue, for the first outing, to to kind of intrigue me, to to make me interested to see, okay, where where are we going with this? Um, and like I say, if I if I see subsequent issues on the cheap again, um, no, this only ran like twenty five issues. You know, I I might start scarfing them up just to kind of you know get a better feel of uh, of the series as a whole and and where things went and all that. But yeah, that's pretty much all I got. What what did you guys think of this? See, I I, I think one of the things about this uh, is it it's not quite edgy enough to have the RoboCop feel. And what's interesting is I think RoboCop two the movie almost got criticized because it went too far into edgy. Uh, So it's almost like you can't win on that. Um, But I thought the story was okay as kind of a sanitized version of of RoboCop or somewhat sanitized version. I didn't think the story was bad, uh, but I do differ from you on the art. I don't care for the art in this issue. And, And the biggest reason is RoboCop himself. I think a character like RoboCop who's, who's, uh, you know, all mechanical and everything, 
there's there's just so much potential to draw him in an imposing and impressive way, and it almost feels like it like he was rushed in this. You know, there's not nearly as much detail as as I feel like the character should need. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking like just things I've seen from uh, different artists on where they drew like Baron Karza or or you know even a lot of Iron Man books and and such where 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 they really went to town on the armor. And and I think you know that this one fell short on that. So. You know the art isn't bad, but it it it, it does have it just kind of that '90s feel to me, even though it's not quite the '90s yet, or it's right. the beginning of the '90s. I'm with you. I definitely have the a '90s vibe from it, mostly from the you know the bad guys and, and the uh, combat fellas. They look right. like this central casting from, from the '90s. <laughs> but, but RoboCop, I think, looks great. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I agree too. The old man looks somewhat similar. Johnson, somewhat similar. And uh, Lewis, in the first picture, you see her. She looks like someone from The Lion King. But after that, it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was it? The Thundercats. That's, that's what... Uh, I'm thinking of right, but no, I think I think the the art is good. I got a kick that they had the little uh, uh, TV segments in there as well, just like the movie. It's kind of right. actually moving towards RoboCop three when I think it gets uh, it goes from R to PG thirteen, and if they'd made another one, it probably would have been PG. I mean, I, I definitely see what you're saying about, you know, the violence. And I and I wouldn't necessarily go into this thinking it's going to be anywhere near as violent as the first movie or as or as bloody or gory or what. But I'll argue that, you know, that it's it's not it's not Saturday morning cartoon either, because, I mean, he literally walks into that alley and just shoots that guy right in the head. So, I mean, he's not screwing around either. And, and they don't you know, it's not off panel. It's not you know, done in any weird angle or whatever. I mean, it's just boom, straight on. He just, he just wastes the guy. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty violent, you know, even for this time. So I, I liked that, you know, that they, you know, they, they got away with it when they could. So I, I kind of liked that aspect of it. And I, I'd be very curious to see what subsequent issues are like violence wise. Cause I don't know that he really had much opportunity in this very first issue for a, a lot of violence. I mean, I guess he could have just come right out of the gate and wasted the, all the guys at the beginning of this, but I mean, he's supposed to be a cop. So, he's, right. you know, he's, he's not going to come, you know, and just blow people away necessarily, you know, without, you know, the, the real provocation or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, I love, I love the alley scene. And the only reason he shoots the guy is the guy shot at him first. So, you know, that was all the provocation he needed, I guess. But Justified uh, shooting. Yep. But, yeah, I, I was intrigued by this. Um, you know, grade-wise, if we're ready for grades, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think it was a it was an A-plus book by any stretch. But, you know, for, for a licensed uh, property – you know, being published by Marvel from R-rated material that was very violent and bloody for its time. Um, I think, 
I think they, you know, they, they did a, a pretty fair balancing act here. So were there were there many other series that you know you could think of off the cuff that were made from R-rated properties? Um, I don't. What was uh, what was Nightmare Before? Oh yeah, not Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, uh, Nightmare in Elm Street. What was that? What were those? Oh, that was uh Was it? Now I never read that, so I, I can't really judge. But uh, I know that they did make. Who, who who did Nightmare on Elm Street's comics though? Marvel. Oh, they did. Really? Yeah. Okay, because I was thinking that was maybe an indie company, and then I was going to say, well, let's you know, what do we have from you know the big two? Well, you never read any of them, you said, right? No, stupidly, I had. I think. I know there's at least two of them. It was they were. It was called something like Freddy's Nightmares or something. That's from like the that. TV were, show. Remember, oh, okay. there was a TV show where he was like oh, the okay. host. So they they were magazine size, you know, like super special size. And I had, I know I definitely had issue one. I think I may have had one and two. I can't remember, but I know I had the first issue because it wasn't material that that. I cared anything about, I ended up sending it to Honeywell. Well, then it turns out that when I started my, my project of, you know, trying to collect the complete works of certain artists that the, like the bulk of the work in that first issue was by Tony D Zaniga. So now it's on my want list again and it's a stupid expensive book. So I kind of did it to myself in that aspect, but yeah, I owned it, but I never did anything other than just kind of flip through it. Cause it's just, I've never seen any of those movies. I don't care about, you know, the character of those movies or anything. So it just was at the time, it wasn't anything in my wheelhouse. Um, trying to think what other, are there any other R? So I tried to do a quick Google search for comic, comic adaptations of R rated movies. And they're giving me the exact opposite. They're giving me R rated movies that were, you know, comic book adaptations. What was Conan rated? Oh, that, I think that I thought that was PG thirteen. I could be wrong. Okay. But but what came first was the, the comic was first, wasn't it? Or the movie? Well, the comic, right. it was a comic did, well before the movie. Yeah, but they did adapt the the movie, the Schwarzenegger movie, to a comic. I'm I'm pretty sure they did Red Sonia as well, but I don't know what Red Sonia was rated either. Um, neither the Jaws. Well, they didn't do Jaws one. They did Jaws two, but I don't think that was R. Um, I don't remember what Meteor was rated, but I don't think that was an R-rated movie. I'm I'm trying to remember. I don't. Yeah, off the top of my head, I know there's probably like an, a super obvious one that I'm just totally forgetting. But um, yeah, I can't I can't think of anything. The only other one off the top of my head is actually a DC DC adapted uh, Total Recall by uh, Schwarzenegger, and I'm pretty sure that was an R-rated movie. I think that was um, too. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't. I, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything else that that Marvel adapted um, that was that was from R rated. But I'm, I, like I said, I'm probably forgetting something completely obvious. Um, but anyway, I mean, do we have anything else on this? Or are we ready for grades on this one? I'm ready. I don't really have anything else. I didn't have a lot on this one, unfortunately. Okay. Um. Cover, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say an A, well, let me think. I'll say an A minus on the cover because the only thing I, I honestly don't like about the cover is I don't like the, the hover bike weirdos in the background. I think if you take them out, 
I think that's a pretty iconic image of RoboCop. It's uh, I think it's pretty well done. It's you know it's a nice stance. It showcases the character. It showcases his environment. I like the OCP building in the background. I even like the coloring. I think it's pretty sharp. I just don't like the uh, the hover bike guys in the background. It just kind of it's unnecessary. It doesn't really it doesn't really add. It just kind of detracts because I'd ra- I'd rather just see the environment behind him rather than them hovering around in the sky like that. So yeah, I, li- I like the cover quite a bit. Interior art. I mean, I'm not like don't get me wrong. I'm not like super enamored of it. I'm just I'm saying for a licensed comic. Um, I was I wasn't pretty impressed with it. I, I thought the the art was was more than serviceable. Um, as far as an overall grade on it, I will say I will say a B minus on the art because I, I do think it's better than than average. Um, I think the anatomy is very good. I like how RoboCop looks. It's got a little of that '90s damage, but of course it's a '90s book. And I was gonna take off for likenesses but they may not have had likeness rights so that might be why lewis looks a little weird um i'm noticing clarence bodiger looks absolutely nothing like kurtwood smith um and i'm still not sure if the if the old man is supposed to be the old man from the movie because if he is he doesn't look a damn thing like him johnson does look like johnson from the movie i thought but uh, i'm not sure on that one either but um, but yeah, I, I thought the art was pretty good for, you know, for what this, this type of comic is. So, um, art wise, what did I say? B, B minus. Yeah, I, I'm going to stick with that. And then story wise, I mean, it's not the greatest story in the world, but it was enough to intrigue me to see, okay, where did they go with this? You know, how did it, how did things go along? You know, did they maintain a quality or is it just, and is it turning into Saturday, Saturday morning cartoons? Does it get stupid? You know, what goes on with it? But for a first issue setup, um, it was pretty good. And I liked that they didn't waste, they basically assumed that you were familiar with the character. So there's a brief little bit, you know, with the dream sequence that could sort of kind of uh, qualify as like a, like a flashback or a, or like an origin, you know, to bring you up to speed on the character. If you weren't familiar of, you know, his origins from the movie or whatever, but I liked that they didn't, tie up a lot with that it it basically just gets right into the story so i thought that was pretty cool and it's a a nice continuation from the film as well i mean not a lot of people survived the first movie but it makes good use of the characters that did um and kind of sets the stage for where things are 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 headed from here so um story-wise um I think I'll go a solid B on the story. I, I really liked it. So as an overall grade for it, I will say a, uh, I'll say, actually say a B plus. I I was pretty impressed with this. I I really went into it blind, totally not knowing what to expect and kind of expecting it to be, kind of kind of shit to be honest. I I kind of expected it to be like you know the Saturday morning cartoon version of RoboCop or something, and was was pleasantly surprised. I, I thought it was pretty well done for what it is. I think if it had been published by another house like dark horse or something it probably would have been a little edgier a little grittier but again for what it is it's not bad because you have to remember too that back during this time i mean I'll, i look back and and occasionally i'll read like an issue of the punisher or something from this time and it seems really really tame and sometimes even lame by today's standards but at the time that that stuff was coming out that was considered like really dark and brutal and edgy and because i remember like 
parents groups being all up in arms about it. And, you know, there was all kinds of talk about, you know, setting up a new rating system for comics and all this just over like off the stands, Punisher comics. So I think you kind of have to view it through that lens as well. So this, this probably has about the same level of violence as your average issue of the Punisher from the time, which was, which was catching some flack. So you know, I, I think you have to kind of grade it on a curve, you know, from the violence angle. I, at least that's my guess anyway. But but yeah, I, I dug it. I was pleasantly surprised. You or me, Dave? Uh, I'll go. I'll be brief. I'll be I'll be very brief. I like this. I'm glad you brought this to my attention. I, I'm going to read some more of this. The uh, the cover, I I have the same complaint you have. This would be an A-plus cover for me, but for the hover bikes. To be blunt, as far as I'm concerned, you could take the hover bikes out of the book altogether. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's just I I don't see a motorcycle gang having hover bikes, but regardless. He looks great on the cover. It's an iconic pose. Like you said, the OCP building. I I looked at this. I started to hear that theme song from the movie in the background mm-hmm. yep um the interior art i th- i think it's good i i have the same complaint about the uh, the hover bikes in the book uh, i find it interesting with the combat and the curves that they're spelling it wrong with a k <laughs> so much for the education system of old detroit um a lot of the characters are very, you know, my initial reaction was a lot of the characters are very, you know, 90-ish, that look to them. But that was the movie, too, pretty much. Right. To me, they kind of look like they stepped out of the film. Uh, the interior art I gave, uh, my, my cover rating was an A- minus because of the bikes. The interior art, to me, it's solid, it's serviceable. I recognize the characters. I would go with a, a B plus. The story, I'm curious to see where it goes. I, I, I'm on board to continue along and at least a little bit and see where this takes us. I, I gave the story a, a B plus. So an overall rating, B plus, high B plus. And I'm glad you brought this to my Ooh. attention. So now's where I bring everybody down. Ah, dick. It's such a shame we don't have (laughs) any more time for tonight. (laughs) (laughs) See, I look at this cover and I see the potential for it to be really, really good. But I don't think it is. I just don't. Uh, I think the way he's drawn looks kind of amateurish to me. I could see, you know, a really good teenage artist drawing a picture like this. I, I think that the RoboCop armor, can, again, like I said when I was talking about it earlier, I think you could have done so much more and made it look so much more impressive. Uh, and I don't think this does. But to me, it, it's it's okay. I don't I don't see in it what you guys see. Uh, for me, it's a it's a C plus cover. Uh, the interior art I think is actually a slight step up from the cover. But not not a lot. I'm going to say a B minus on on the interior art. It's okay, but again, I just see what could have been, and I don't think it's there. Uh, I, I also think there's points in it where where the story is not as 
followable based upon the the way it's drawn. Uh, I don't I don't feel like the storytelling is especially strong. So, you know, it's okay. Like I said, I'll, I'll say a B minus on it. Uh, the actual story itself, I think, is the strength of the book. And, you know, we talked about the lack of graphic violence. Uh, that's only disappointing from the perspective of you want to capture the feeling for the movie. But I'm not I'm not a fan of violence for violence sake. So I have to look at the story more in depth than just that. And I think it's pretty well written. Uh, and I'm going to say I'm going to give it a, a solid B almost bordering a B plus. And I do think that it is not necessarily the sum of its parts because I think it was enjoyable to read uh, despite the criticism I give. And I would give it overall a B, even though, you know, I said the, the art would be a B minus and the uh, cover would be a C plus. I still feel like it was, it was a worthwhile venture to read. Uh, I'm not quite as glad that you brought it as Dave is, but you know, it was all right. I don't necessarily think I'm going to be seeking out more issues, though. It was okay. <laughs> but what if it had a foil cover? <laughs> oh, well, then, then I would be buying, like, three. Because it would be worth a fortune at some point. Oh, I, I, you know, that would be my retirement fund. <laughs> <laughs> I've made so much on those foil covers so far. It's got to be a good 20 cents in my pocket somewhere. <laughs> But, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> I, 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 like I said, I, I, I wouldn't be seeking it out necessarily. But, you know, if you pick it, if you take another issue to the show, I'll read it. Cool. All right. So I guess that's going to do it for tonight. Hope everybody enjoyed listening. I hope uh, you'll all come back again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everybody, what's up? Dr. Bill, in the house. <laughs>